been an unusual week. Things have happened fast. Uh, they've moved at a pace that was much quicker than we had anticipated. Um, as you probably have guessed by now, this will be our last gathering together in this, in this room until Easter. We're hoping that we will be able to have Easter service together here, and if we do, can you imagine what a day of rejoicing that will be? Um, we had made a decision in the leadership when our board met the other night that in the event that our government officials and school districts felt it necessary to quarantine and no longer to have school, that it would be wise for us, just out of an abundance of caution, that we would follow. Uh, and we present a larger risk because of the number of people that we have together. And I am not a panic person by any means. And the thing that I have been reminded of is that there are some that would come and naturally attend just because they wouldn't miss if it, was, if it was open that might be more vulnerable than the rest of us. And should one of us uh, somehow infect somebody else without even knowing it, then we, of course, would, would feel horrible about that. So it's not that we don't trust God, and it's not that he's not the master of everything, and he's not the great healer because he is, but because we want to have an influence in our community, uh, we are going to abide by the restrictions. And I understand that based on um, if there is a case that is discovered between now and Wednesday, Wednesday will be the last day of schools. If there is not, Friday will be the last days of schools. All of this represents to us that before next Sunday, our county will be under a state of emergency. And so we are not canceling church. We're just not meeting here. You need, you need to know the difference in that. We will still be having our service and uh, our pastoral team and worship team are going to be meeting right after this to, to figure out the best way that we're going to make it available. For those of you that don't know how to get on your computers and log in for either a live stream or uh, a service that we'll be putting online, ask your grandkids. They know how. <laughs> and they will help you. They will help you with, you know, some of you have big 65-inch screens. I will look bigger on that screen than I have ever looked in real life. Um, and you will be able to project that onto your screen and in the comfort of your living room you can praise in your pajamas and you can spill coffee on your own carpet and <laughs> just have a great time worshiping the Lord and listening to the word uh, but it's going to look different as we move forward over these next uh, few weeks and uh, today Today is a national day of prayer that has been instituted by our president. Uh, I do need you to know that following this service, our church will be closed and will not reopen until Easter, so there'll be nothing that will take place here. And so I will be giving some instructions a little bit later on on what we're going to do tonight between 6 and 7 when we participate uh, in, in what we can do to touch our own community in prayer, but we will all be... Uh, hopefully going through our neighborhoods. I have something that I want to just read you today. This came from a friend of mine who pastors in Washington, and uh, they have had way more cases discovered in, in their area than we have here. And here's what he wrote to his congregation. I, I told him, I'm, I'm going to steal this and read it to you today. We are living in unprecedented times as activities of all kinds are canceled, postponed, suspended because of the COVID-19 and there's some common sense things that you can do to protect yourself from the virus, and I think it's wise to follow local and national health department suggestions. 
but sometimes there are things that begin to have such a magnitude that it affects our entire country and it's easy to let fear and panic grab our hearts and it's a very natural human response and we have seen it in our own community when it took an hour and a half for some of you to check out of Wegmans yesterday Uh, and for those of you that got ice cream by the time you got home it was gone by the way ice cream is a staple I just wanted you to be aware of that Um, and uh, have seen the shelves cleared out and and so there is a level of panic and fear that is gripping our community but I want you to know something there is a cure there is a cure for fear and that cure is the peace that surpasses all understanding that cure is found in Jesus and so instead of worrying about what we cannot control here's some ideas that will activate peace within your life and in our community in these times number one here's what I want you to do everywhere you go would you please smile people's heads are downcast we're afraid to touch one another so just smile I have been told that there are neurotransmitters that are called endorphins that are released when you smile and a smile is contagious because a smile produces a response of a smile in somebody else so when they see you smiling they're thinking what do you know that I don't know and and will respond with that same way and so a smile you're just smiling will activate peace within people secondly reach out one of the greatest concerns that I have about this is that fear is going to isolate and uh, it makes people feel alone but peace flourishes when people are together so in times when I know it's wise to keep your distance let's also be creative in how we reach out make time to eat together as a family some of you haven't had that in a long time and it might be nice and if you have neighbors that are able invite them to come and join you for a meal Um, I also want you to begin to check on your neighbors and uh, we, we have this thing called text message that's really easy for us and I want us to stay connected. The hardest thing in the world for me today is not to be able to hug you and to shake your hands. It's just killing me. So we're going to text hug one another uh, for the next few days and, and just kind of keep track of what's happening. But let's reach out. Do not go into your houses and close the door and isolate yourself. We must reach out. Thirdly, have fun. Let me just repeat that for those of you that look so somber today. Have fun. This is not the middle of the winter. We can go outdoors. We can get out and we can walk. We can talk to our neighbors. We can do things. And you know what? To the best of your ability, would would you keep our local businesses in business? I'm so concerned for people in our communities who have had to lay off servers because they're not gathering in, in, in areas anymore and just the drive-through. And, and, uh, um, until we are told not to, if it is at all possible, let's keep our businesses thriving to the best of our ability and just love people that way as a church and, and have some fun together. Fourthly, give thanks. Fear makes you want to react that everything is going wrong. Giving thanks bridles that fear and brings into focus that our God is the true sustainer. 
And we have much to be thankful for. Even in the middle of this, we have much to be thankful for. And so if, you're, if, if you give thanks, it begins to tear down the walls of your worry and it reminds you of all the good that surrounds you. And it's hard to be fearful when your heart is full of thanksgiving. So giving thanks activates peace. And then pray. We need you to pray. I've discovered on my, how many of you are still on, on the Bible app and you're, and you're doing that? Because I, I remembered in January, I had 85 people that I was doing it with. By March, I'm down to 46. So for the rest of you that lost your phones, find them again and go back on the app because um, in the absence of gathering like this, you're going to have to take responsibility for your own spiritual life and your own spiritual food. And so get back into the word of God. Make sure you start the day with it. Have prayer together. Uh, and so what we're going to do tonight in this day of prayers, I'm gonna ask everybody to put on your jackets because Pablo didn't today and he wishes he had. But put on your jackets and I want you to go walking through your neighborhood. And I want you to pray for it. And I want you to stop and have as many conversations with your neighbors as you can possibly have. And while you're walking and pray them, ask if there's anything that you can pray for them for. Uh, as we get into the message, I'm gonna talk about some other ways that we may be able to serve each other. But we are not going to isolate ourselves from the world. We can be wise in what we do, but being outdoors is a healthy place to be. And so tonight, we are going to follow our president's instruction and pray for our nation by walking in our neighborhoods and let's just pray God's peace. God's peace over everything that's taking place. And then remember this in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't worry about anything, <laughs> not even toilet paper. <laughs> Some of you have 144 rolls for the next three weeks. Think about that for a minute. By the way, some of the memes that I've seen are cracking me up as it relates to that toilet paper. You guys are hilarious and a little on the edge. <laughs> back to the scripture. I'm going to dive right back into the scripture. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace that will exceed anything that we can understand. His peace will guard our hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So I apologize for the interruption of what's taking place, but I do believe that as the squeeze comes on that there will be expressions of love and ministry that we will be able to participate in that we may not have found any other way except through this. So while we will not be gathering together to worship, we are still the church and let's be the church. And thank you for all of you who sent me text messages. Actually, they're the ones that sent me text messages telling me I was crazy to have church today are not here. Uh, and for all of you that sent me text messages saying I'd be crazy if we don't, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we're going to try to do what is wise to the best of our ability. And so we will be sending out uh, tutorial instructions for what next Sunday will look like for you. And uh, we're going to be continuing on in the series that we're doing. We're going to be worshiping together. And so I just need you to know we're not canceling church, just redirecting its location. And so please be aware of that. This morning, I would like to spend the next few minutes continuing on in the series that we started about seven weeks ago, uh, where we were talking about benchmarks of faith. In other words, what does it look like in our life as followers of Jesus Christ 
when we're living in real life situations that what my life represents what Christ wants it to look like. What am I aiming for? The benchmarks of faith. And today, our benchmark is finding my place to serve God. Now, I have to admit to you that I was tempted this week to just kind of drop the series and dive into to preaching about why we shouldn't fear and, and things of that nature. But I was arrested in my spirit. And the Lord said, listen, I knew before you started this series what today was going to be about, and I want you to talk about service because it comes at a time that is ideal for the church to recognize this is our time to shine. It's our time to shine. So Father, I pray that over these next few moments that you will redirect our thoughts, that you will challenge us in brand new ways so that we can reflect the power and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to all that we come in contact with. And in the middle of places where there is fear and panic, may the peace of Jesus live and reign in and through us pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a story that Max Lucado tells in his book, No Wonder They Call Him Savior. There's a man by the name of Jake that was a game warden, and he was always amazed that when he would check this one particular lake, there was a fisherman by the name of Sam that was coming in, and Sam always had the most fish and the biggest fish. He reached his limit every day when it seemed as if other really quality fishermen couldn't catch anything. Sam was always coming in with the full limit. And so one day, the curiosity of the game warden got the best of him, and he said to Sam one day, he says, hey, I'd like to know your secret. What do you do that helps you catch fish when nobody else does? And Sam looked at him and said, well, if you want to go fishing with me, why don't you meet me here tomorrow morning early, and I'll show you. And so the game warden showed up the next morning, and Sam got in the boat long before anybody else was at the lake and started his motor, and they took off on about a 40-minute ride across this lake till he got to a very very secluded place where nobody lived around it nobody could be seen and he stopped the motor and he just sat there for a second and when it got as still as it could be Sam reached into his tackle box and took a stick of dynamite and lit it tossed it up in the air and just as it was coming to the water and the ripple effect of that shock made the fish just start floating to the top and Sam turned on his motor and walked over and or started scooping up the biggest fish that were there while they were still in shock and putting them on his stringer and he looked at the game warden and smiled the game warden screamed you have broke every law there is to break you cannot do this I'm going to throw the book at you I'm going to fine you till you don't have any money left and then I'm going to throw you in jail Sam reached into his tackle box and took another stick of dynamite and lit it and tossed it into the lap of Jake he said, are you going to sit here and complain or are you going to fish? <clears throat> Sometimes it takes a stick of dynamite to get us to do anything. This explosion that is taking place around our nation, I almost believe sometimes it's like Jesus lighting a stick of dynamite and tossing it in our lap and said, so are you going to sit there and complain or are you going to get out and serve? Are you going to do something? One of the devil's biggest playgrounds is lying to people within the walls of the church because he understands this. If he cannot destroy us, and he cannot, then he will seek to discourage us. How many of you have been discouraged this week? How many are facing things in your life that I'm, I'm just discouraged? That is the tool of the enemy to keep godly people from serving. And if he cannot have us in his service, if we're not going to serve Satan and we're going to serve the Lord, then what he seeks to do then is to render us ineffective in God's service. 
In fact, his whole way that he works with people who are believers in Jesus Christ is, I want to play chess with you, but I just want to get it to a stalemate where you have no effect on the world around you. You just come and you sit and you be blessed and then you go and you shut up and you don't do anything. And honestly, he has accomplished this very well recently and it's not difficult to do much of the time because of all of the distractions that we have in the world And the enemy has a wealth of resources to distract us with. And so anything that he can do to keep us from being active in God's service, he will use. And then there are those of you that are particularly difficult to neutralize because you're always looking for something new in the Lord. And here's how he attacks you. He begins to tell you no matter what you do, it's never enough and that God is never pleased with what you can accomplish. And so you drive yourself beyond sometimes what the Lord would have you do simply because you so desperately want God to be pleased with you. Some of you have in your mind this distinction, well, you know what, ministry is for pastors and missionaries. That's that's what you're called to do. That's what the ministry is. And I want you to understand that there is a ministry call on every one of us from the moment that we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And if you do not believe that you don't have a call to ministry or a call of God to do something, then you have misunderstood what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and you need to set a new benchmark of faith as it relates to how you will serve people. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, For we are his creation. He are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time. (coughs) Excuse me that we should walk in them. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 says this, that the church or the ministry or the occupational pastors, what our job is is for the training of the saints in the work of the ministry. In other words, very clearly, we must understand that your greatest job is not to sit here on a Sunday morning. Your greatest job, having been brought into relationship with Christ, is to find ways to express him Everywhere you go and in everything you do within the callings and the giftings that he has given to you. God has saved you so that he can use you and you're being involved in something that glorifies him as a benchmark of your faith. Now as you and I grow in our understanding of the will of God, there are several things that are going to take place. Number one, and if you have your bulletin, there's an outline there that you can follow and jot some notes down if you desire. Number one, be satisfied in what God has called us to be. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians chapters, chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. <clears throat> Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While all our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. For if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you has a part in it. How many of you remember Veggie Tales? <clears throat> a pretty good bunch of you. As I was reading this, I was picturing this is Paul's attempt at creating a Veggie Tales story. Animated little vegetables that run around and have these little messages and they talk. And here's the Apostle Paul's attempts because these verses are loaded with talking body parts. And most of the talking body parts within this passage of Scripture have really bad attitudes. In fact, Paul is talking and he's going, in one part he has a foot talking. And the foot, can you imagine this talking foot? Walking around and he's very, very upset because his role is not the hand. And so you have this talking foot talking to the hand saying, I just wanted to be like you. I can't believe that I was made the way I am. And, and if I was like you, I would be so much better. And then you have an ear talking to an eye. Can you imagine a talking ear looking at an eye going, I just can't believe I'm not like you. And the eye can't say to the hand, oh, you are so ugly. You know, so you have these parts of the body that are talking to one another. The head, the head cannot say, I don't need you to the rest of the body. And so he's saying there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer. If one part rejoices, all the part rejoices. How do I know that is true? Because when I was in college for a very short time, I worked on a crew of people that uh, put new shingles on people's roofs. I remember one day when I was early and starting that, that I put the, the nail down and I swung the hammer down and I missed the nail and I hit my finger. Do you know that my whole body stayed up with my finger that night? Everybody suffered together, couldn't sleep because my finger had a black nail and pressure under there and my head and my ears and my breathing and my tears, they, were, they just suffered with the one member of the body. And I think, you know, there's a great example of the way that we are to respond to each other. And in this passage, before Paul addresses our actions, he first addresses our attitudes and indicates that for us to have an attitude where we're reaching for a benchmark of service, the first thing we need is humility. That spirit that neither boasts about its own gifts or is jealous of the gifts of others. Also, it brings into to play an attitude of sound judgment neither thinking too little of yourself or thinking too highly of yourself. I believe that in the Christian world, most people today think too little of themselves. You do not believe that God can use you in ways. And so you sit back and you look around the room and you say, there are other people who are far more talented, far more capable, and so I won't do anything because I don't want to rob them of the opportunity to do what they do best. And you think so little of yourself that you have removed any opportunity that God can use you, and you need to stop it and recognize that you are a part of the body of Christ and there's some things that only you can do. When we have the proper opinion of ourselves, 
Only then can we be satisfied to be all that God wants us to be. Nothing more and nothing less. The other side of that coin is that there are people who are not satisfied with who they are or their skills and in pride are constantly complaining that they're not doing something else. This all started with Eve in the Garden of Eden. She wasn't satisfied to be a special creation of God. The first created woman. Satan tempted her by telling her that if she ate the fruit, she could be like God. And the pride in her would not let her be satisfied with who she was and pushed for more. And there are others. But you need to know that God has created you to be a part of the body. And he needs you to function in what he has gifted you to do. We live in a society right now that is full of a consumer mentality. What's in it for me? We've seen that this week where I understand that yesterday morning it took an hour and a half to check out of Wegmans lines. That the lines were so long for people that were waiting just to get in there. Why? Because when we get into a panic mode, the first thing we think about is ourselves. Who's going to take care of me? And so I'm going to rush, which is why there are some people that have four years worth of toilet paper stored up in the house because they are thinking of me. And that's what I've got to do. Even, even in the church, we understand, for those of you that if first time I've been in our church, I congratulate you. On coming on a day when so many places are closing and we look forward to know you but we also recognize that we have whole hospitality ministries that are set up specifically so that guests when they come in knowing that they're going to decide in the first 7 to 11 minutes whether they will ever come back or not will have an experience that will be favorable but sometimes we can take that so far that we believe that we need to live with that attitude and Jesus states that as we grow in him and desire to have a benchmark of faith of service that we would remember that he said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. And so there's different aspects to faith. There's an aspect of your faith that brings you into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there's an aspect of faith that brings you into a serving knowledge. And I'm praying that that aspect, our faith is exercised and grows. Secondly, notice that we must work in unity. We live in a country where individuals' rights are constantly proclaimed, where they mean more than the corporate well-being. Individuality has gone to seed and it's come back as selfishness and each person for themselves. And in the middle of that, the Lord speaks to his people and he speaks to us in 1 Corinthians 12, 25 when he said, there should not be any division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern. There's a call for unity in this. Paul says, my thumb can't wake up and say to itself that, you know what, I want to be like the other four. If I'm not, I'm not going to work at all. It's Mike acting up. Can you bring me a handheld, please? Is this on? Thank you. The thumb can't say I'm leaving just because it's not satisfied with who it is. 
There was a true story that was told that I read this week that I thought was quite fascinating. There was a man in Canada that went to visit one of his friends, and his, his friend was a surgeon and happened to be on call the night in which he went there. And as he was there, the phone rang, and he said, man, I'm sorry, I have to leave you, but I've got to go. There's an emergency I've got to take care of. But listen, you're a guest in my home. Eat anything you want. Everything in the refrigerator is yours. Just make yourself at home here. So his friend left to take care of the emergency, and after a while, the man decided, you know, I am a little hungry. So he got up and he went to the refrigerator, and as he opened the door of the refrigerator, there was a human hand in a Ziploc bag in his friend's refrigerator. He lost his appetite shortly after that. And as I heard that story, I began to think, isn't it? I'd like you all just to look at your hands for a moment. You haven't shaken anybody's hand with it today, have you? Just look at it. It's remarkable. Have any of you ever taken any time just to look at your fingerprints? In fact, some of you have hands that are so beautiful you could be hand models. Some of us don't care. We just want them to work. But it is an unbelievable tool that God created. And we can look at our hands and the front and back, look at her, and it's just fine. But it would freak us out if we were the ones that opened that refrigerator door and found a hand that had been severed. Because severed body parts are ugly. They're useless. They don't do anybody any good. And let me tell you this. Today there is nobody who is more miserable as a believer than a believer who is difficult in his spirit and will say, I don't care what goes on around me. I'm a Christian, but I don't like Christians. And I'm not going to associate with Christians. I'm going to leave the church. I'm going to take my bad attitude. I'm going to go. You become like a severed hand. You have been removed from the body. And while it is attractive when there's life flowing through it, it becomes ugly and shriveled and disgusting when it's been severed from the body. And if you're a member of Christ Jesus, you can walk away from a church and you can get angry and you can get disappointed and you can remove yourself from a body of believers, but you are going to live a gruesome life separated from the life flow that God wants you to have. And when this happens in the body of Christ, it's called division. And Paul addresses this issue here, this tension between being an individual yet being part of a larger body as a whole when he said each member of the body is an individual, but it's an important to understand our individuality without sacrificing our sense of community is the way that God works within us. He wants you just who you are and the way he has made you and plugged into the body so that you can function at the highest level. We have different gifts I have the gift of preaching and leadership. Others have the gift of service. There are so many different gifts, and we need every one of them to function. There are some of you that have marvelous gifts that I do not have, and we need them working together. 1 Corinthians 12 clearly states to us that while there are different gifts, it's all birthed out of the same spirit of God that is at work within us, and it's to be used for the common good. And so Paul introduces this plurality of thought here. When he says you're all different, you look different, you sound different, you've been created different, you have different backgrounds, some come from different countries, different cultures, but when we are brought together, there is a beauty that is made of us that only Jesus can do, and in functioning together in unity, we can change a world because that's what God desires. Chuck Swindoll 
in his book Hope Again, gives one of the best definitions of unity that I've ever heard. He starts out by saying, let me give you some descriptions. Number one, there's the term union. Union means people have an affiliation with others, but no common bond that makes them of one heart. Then there's uniformity that has everybody looking and thinking exactly alike. There's, then there's unanimity, which is people that are in complete agreement across the board. But what God asks of us is to be in unity, which me, refers to a oneness of heart, a similarity of purpose, and an agreement on major points of doctrine and purpose so they can serve together. We want unity. And so as individual members, we will work in unity for the common good of the body of Christ. Thirdly, we serve according to God's giftings. We can only do this in proportion to our faith. You can serve as much as you trust God to do through you. But you must exercise that gift. Some of you have not served in a long time, and as a result of that, the, the gift or the muscle of serving is, is atrophied, and the Lord wants you to begin to work on that so that you can begin to grow in your faith and take a weak faith to a usable faith and a usable faith to a serving faith and a serving faith that will bless other people. But he says you do this based on the faith that you have. There's a really unique passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 19, and, and someday I'm going to go back to this, and I'm going to exegete it in, it in its fullness because there's so much there, but I, I want to read it to you and then pull a part out of it in a new way of applying it. In Luke 19, verses 12 through 26, it says, A man of noble birth went to a distant, a di distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to be our king. But he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in the small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And his master said, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man? taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they replied, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now, rather than digging into the historical context of all this, which I would love to do right now, here's what I want you to understand. The successful servants in this particular parable were humble. They knew that their entire enterprise was impossible without the initial investment from the king. The king is the one that initially invested something in them. While their results were not exactly the same, their reward was based on the fruit of their effort of their service. One came in ten times, the other five times. 
And they knew when they had received this gift of the king that anything that happens following the gift is an extension of the gift and the glory belongs to the giver of the gift, which is the king. And so humbly they said, everything that we've done with this is only because you gifted us with it in the first place. And the king's response was well done. There are so many of us that our greatest desire is whether the church is raptured and we stand before God and our time of judgment comes or whether we die and stand before him, that we would hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so many people have just interpreted that to mean that if I make it to heaven, if all I have exhibited is a saving faith, that when I finally get to heaven, he's going to say, well done, just because I was saved, I tend to disagree with you. I believe that well done will be said to those who knew what God had invested in them and learned to take that and invest it in service of others so that when we stand before him, we do not come alone. But that there will be fruit from the testimony of our lives. Then we will hear well done. Interesting enough, the one who took the mean and wrapped it in cloth, basically what it is saying within the context was he wrapped it in a piece of cloth and he threw it in his sock drawer and totally ignored that he had it just so that he wouldn't be afraid of losing it. I believe that there is within the church today a desire that we would stand up and be counted for who we are and who lives within us. Some of you need to reach into your sock drawer and pull out the gifts that God has given you and begin to learn to serve and invest yourselves in the lives of others so that the Christ living within you can be seen in a greater way. The final servant who had everything taken away demonstrated a twisted sense of the heart of his master. And I can tell you that people who are involved in the ministry don't have time to complain. People who sit and watch everybody else in ministry are the complainers. And this one complained when everybody else is rewarded because he had done nothing. So serve, church. And lastly, how do we live out our service? Allow me to suggest three things that we can do to fulfill the ministries which God has called us and gifted us for. Number one, we must be part of a local body of believers. I understand that for the next three weeks, we're not going to be able to gather in this setting. But don't you for one second think that you are not part of Grace Assembly's body of believers. Because you are. And there comes life that surges through us when we are connected to the body and when we are accountable to the body, when we are strengthened by the body, when we minister within the body. And so one of the things I'm going to ask you to do over these next three weeks is keep track of each other. Call one another. Our elders and our deacons and our board and our, and our, our pastors are going to be calling you and texting you because we do not want to lose connection with you. We want to know what's going on and we're going to gather together and we're going to fight this thing together in prayer and stand with one another. Because that's what it means to be part of the body. And then you must understand what God's will is for your life. In order to do that, you've got to be in God's word. There are no sports on TV. <laughs> let, let me just repeat that because ESPN is dying. The announcers, I was watching them with hilarity because they don't know what to talk about. So you married men, have a conversation with your, your wife. You might like her. <laughs> Suddenly, the patterns of life 
that we've been so accustomed to are gone. So rather than sitting there and filling it with Netflix, let's see what God's up to. Let's have some personal conversations with him. Let's see what the God's people are up to. Encourage one another in your callings and your giftings. Share your experiences. Talk about your heart's desire. Begin to dream with one another again of what God wants to do. And then exercise your faith and fulfill our ministry. I believe that our church, while it's being squeezed from this place, is being squeezed into other places. You know, it was in the early church that when they were persecuted, they scattered and they changed their world. How do we know that in three weeks our city won't be changed by us being scattered from this place? I was having a conversation with Heather Sylvia, one of our principals, and in our meeting she was expressing to me the number of parents that are about to face some huge dilemmas because their kids will not be going to school. Many of them have two two parents that are both working. As a result of that, there are kids that either the parents are going to lose income or maybe there are those of us in the church that can, while we're praying tonight for our neighbors, ask how many of them. Hey, do you have kids that just, you need somebody to watch for a while? Some of you that are really gifted may be able to help them in some of their schoolwork as they begin to transition into some new ways of learning. I believe that we as the church may be being forced out of this building so that we can be squeezed into our community in some brand new ways. In fact, I fully believe that there will be new ministries that will begin to be birthed out of the ashes of this that we would have never known any other way until God says, get into your community. Start loving people. Start looking for needs. If you have people that you know are vulnerable, ask them if you can go shop for them so that they can stay in places of safety. Sit down with them. While we're having service on the computer, invite your neighbors to come and have coffee with you. Maybe they wouldn't come here, but they would sit at your table and perhaps listen to a message with you as you introduce them. We could have our highest attendance ever in the next three weeks and then blow the doors out at Easter. But God is squeezing us from this place so that we can go and serve. Worship team, would you please come? I want to tell you this story in conclusion. During the height of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln often found a refuge at a Presbyterian church in Washington, D.C., he would go there with his aide and he would take off his big hat and it would sit in his lap and he would slip into the side and he would sit by the pastor's office where most of the people that were attending in midweek services couldn't see him. And he would listen as the pastor would unlock the scriptures and teach God's word and would lead the congregation in worship. It was at a time when war was tearing the nation apart. It was tearing his own soul apart. He had just lost his own son. Lincoln was on the bottom. He needed solace and he needed sustenance. As the pastor finished the message that particular evening and the people began to leave, the president stood quietly, straightened his coat, took his hat in his hand, and as he began to leave, the aide stopped him and said, what did you think of the sermon, Mr. President? And President Lincoln stood there for a moment and contemplated and then he thought, I thought the sermon was carefully thought through. I thought it was eloquently delivered. And the aide looked at him and said, oh, 
So you thought it was a great sermon then, huh? And the president stood and looked at him and he said, No, I think the pastor failed. The aide said, You think he failed? Because, Yeah, I do. Why? And here's what he said Because he did not ask anything great of us. There's so many different ways that we could look at the circumstances of our city and our country and our nation right now. But I believe that this is a moment that God is asking something great of the church. By the way, I hope all of you have been in prayer for our health care givers. I've been in prayer for our doctors, our nurses, those that are in the hospitals, those that are preparing. And believe me, there is a lot of preparation going on behind the scenes that we know nothing about. But we've been telling them we have been praying for you. Preparing for worst case scenarios. And in the middle of that, rather than letting fear get to us, I'm asking for greatness of you because God has put it in you. It may be laying latent, but by faith he's going to awaken it. And so we will live these three weeks not in fear, but on mission. To see what God is up to. Let's find ways of demonstrating the love of Jesus to every heart and every person. And let's see what God can do through us. It's our time to shine. It's our time to serve.